Hi, folks. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Nadia Butt. I'm an organizational development and belonging strategist, and I'm joined by my friend, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. Hi, Rob. Hello, Nadia. How are you this week? I am fantastic. So yeah. great to, yeah, everything's, yeah, it's the snow starting to fall oh, out here okay. in Utah. Early, good. but not for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, I just showed you our Golden Crane podcast award that we won. Right. Um, got it in the mail because it wasn't able to join them in person. So what do you think? It's a huge it's really, award. It's so heavy. <laughs> it's literally, it feels like it's like at least 10 pounds. Do you feel a lot of pressure? So I'm starting to feel a lot of pressure to repeat. Like, do you, are you feeling pressure to, oh, to win oh, the yeah. award I wanna again like, next year? Yeah, I want to come back in. I want to be the, um, what's we the We have word? to get stronger as a team here. Yeah. We got to win this again. Yeah, look at this award. It's so beautiful. Yeah, we have to it. win it again. So it says 2024. Well, I'm I'm dedicated to it. I'm I'm doing pull ups and push ups, and I'm ready. I'm I'm ready to hit, ready to get there out there in 2024. Awesome. Win it again. Let's do it. All right. So should we talk about this week on Inclusive Collective? We're going to be serving up DEI news and views. We'll be discussing a Tesla worker revolt in Sweden. Lululemon's anti-Muslim photo editing. Bad behavior at the FDIC. We'll also chat about more evidence against implicit bias training, more realistic black hairstyles in video games, and what white people should be doing for DEI. And helping us break all of this down is our friend Aparna Ray. Aparna is an award-winning multi-startup founder working at the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and data to create workspaces that work for everyone. Aparna is the founder of Moving Beyond, a startup building solutions to solve complex DEI and people challenges using real-time employee voice and impact data, experiential e-learning, and an innovative lab approach grounded in human-centered design. Aparna is a sought-after speaker and an author whose writing has been featured in Forbes, Business Insider, GeekWire, and Power to Fly. She's a regular contributor to Forbes, Ray, thanks so much for joining us a second time on Inclusive Collective. Thanks for inviting me, y'all. Aparna, I'm so excited to see you had me um, in stitches earlier, just laughing on a, you know, early in the week. So I appreciate that. How have you been? Really good. Yeah? Traveling yeah. more fun lately? Uh, no, you know, I feel like uh, the end of the year really is a time for PowerPoint presentations, strategy mm. decks, looking at. Excel spreadsheets. And so that's, how that's I what I've been up to. Yeah. Hey. Awesome. Well, you know, hopefully it's restful because <laughs> we all need some rest. All right. So we're so excited because you're going to join us with the deets this week. So um, we'd love to get started and have you kick us off. Perfect. Okay. So I have been tracking what's happening with the labor unions in Sweden, specifically around the organizing that they're doing against Tesla. And it's been going on for a couple of weeks. And so, you know, folks might have read or heard that various sort of automotive adjacent labor unions are basically boycotting Tesla. They're refusing to repair cars. And what's been really Really, really cool to watch happen because this is not something that we see happening in the U.S. really ever or very rarely is that a lot of the other labor unions have thrown in 
and have also been striking. In particular, their postal delivery workers were refusing to mail things to the Tesla repair shops and, you know, like other Tesla factories. Oh, so there's like adjacent groups that are just as pissed. I mean, they're like tons of other unions in Sweden Mm. are backing, right, their colleagues in the automotive industry. And uh, we've also seen in, you know, various European countries where workers are refusing to, like longshoremen, uh, dock workers are refusing to unload Tesla cargo. Anyways, the story that I wanted to share with you, and I, you know, I think that it is an indicator of how hard wealthy companies and business interests are trying to tamp down on organizing instead of doing the right thing, which in many instances is like paying their workers, um, you know, like having having a work atmosphere that works for people. So in the most recent development, Tesla sues the labor unions and they've gotten essentially what sounds like an injunction. So the unions have to deliver things and fix cars and all of the rest of it. But yeah, I'm just really interested to see where it goes because I I get a sense from tracking this particular story is that they're going to keep organizing. Yeah, they're pissed. What it's just so interesting to me, like the um that Musk is doing. It seems like he's just doing this out of spite, and um I I, I just think about like this flexing that he's doing, that is going to, I think, create a ripple effect with other leaders that are going to be like, well, I'm just going to come back and sue my employees too, and these unions. And it's just sad to me because these employees are really just seeking like basic things like fair wages, good pensions. You know, I think one of the uh, the article you sent, so like good insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, I also was reading like you had mentioned um, some of the the impacts like I had I had seen that dock workers at some of the Swedish ports are refusing to offload Tesla's cleaning crews aren't cleaning showrooms and the mechanics aren't fixing charging stations. So they're full on protests. I just power of solidarity is 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 great well look you know this 130 workers that started striking last month and so we're not talking about thousands of workers going on strike we're talking really about a small number of people and i bet the legal bill is already bigger than the cost (laughs) of funding whatever you know they they've been asking for and that to me is the thing that's so wild about the way in which wealthy, I would say, American oligarchs, right, like heads of these multinational companies are fighting tooth and nail. And I say this as somebody who drives a Tesla, we have Tesla batteries, right? Like, it's an amazing product. And I just, I actually really don't understand why the concept of paying people a living wage and providing safe, like safety nets is it so hard for the wealthy? Right. Like, what are you going to do? Eat your money? Like, eat your Tesla? Like, Uh, you can't eat your Tesla. You can't spend You can eat money. You can eat money, though. It's uh, technically possible. I actually think it's illegal. And there's... And and so, like... I I think it's illegal. You can't burn money. I don't think you can can eat it either. (laughs) But I like the the collaborative 
nature and the story that you pointed out, we have seen some of this here, right? So with the United Auto Workers, right? Mm -hmm. And they think about the the effectiveness of Sean Fain, the president there, of getting separate unions for the first time ever to collaborate and then walk out at very strategic and key points. And so Mm -hmm. there's starting to be a little bit more collaboration and coordination between unions here in the U.S., uh, there are mostly weak unions here in the U.S., and that's, the, that's a much different situation than you have in Sweden to be able to pull something like this off. So, uh, yeah. you know, really cool. And I was wondering about, uh, you know, folks that drive Tesla. So I didn't know that you drove a Tesla. I was wondering how people were feeling about the product now, given where we are going. I mean, we're talking about the most feverishly anti-union leader. Maybe Jeff Bezos is up there as well, but uh, in terms of, you know, he said this past week that unions shouldn't exist. And so I just wondered how Tesla owners are starting to feel about their product. Any, any backlash for you, Aparna? I, I don't have a Tesla. Well, you know, I, I live in Redmond, Washington, which is where Microsoft is headquartered in the neighborhood that I live in, you know, with really old houses, small old houses from the sixties. There is a Tesla in almost every single driveway on right. my street. And I I do, you know, there are moments where I've seen people vandalize Teslas because Elon Musk is like an absolutely despicable human thing. And so, yes, I think that's there. I mean, they just released the full self-drive, which is incredibly aggressive. And I'm like, oh, your personality is showing through in your products like this is really bizarre um i mean the product look i think the product is great i i do think that the innovation is real the innovation is real i can charge my car in 30 minutes as a, at a supercharger you know and i can go from seattle to vancouver british columbia on a single charge so i think all of that's there and i probably would not make the decision to buy another tesla now yeah. right? Right, right like all that's that what said. most of my friends who have teslas now would say if i know if i knew back then what i know now i i wouldn't have purchased a tesla mm-hmm. yeah you know so it's something to, to keep our eyes on um and watch and we'll be interested to see what what happens um i'm going to shift to our next story here so Aman Assad, an Arab-American runner, competed in the New York City Marathon. Have either of you been to one? I mean, they're super fun. Um, My brother ran uh, the Boston and the New York City one. Super fun to watch. Anyways, um, after the marathon, she said in an interview that she was cropped out of a Lululemon media campaign. Um, She claims because of her identity and support for Palestinians in the Israel-Hamas war, Apparently, in the beginning of October, she participated um, in a photo shoot to promote the marathon and the marathon training program that she was a part of uh, that was sponsored by the athletic apparel company um, Lululemon. Mm. And then she quickly realized that she'd been cropped out of um, every image um, without explanation. What uh, I did a little bit of digging here, some investigatory work here, and apparently Amina's previous Instagram posts and stories had included links to fundraisers for Palestinians and a page calling for a boycott of Boeing over materials it provided to Israeli forces. And then her profile also had links to a website called Decolonize Palestine. 
Mm. I will pause there for um, reactions from uh, Rob. You first. Yeah. So as a person that is frequently cropped out of photos for non-religious <laughs> or political reasons, I I am triggered a little bit by this. But so, you know, I think that Lululemon, it seems like someone effed up, right? Like, in, and, and at least they know that they effed up. They apologize, right? They, it's very rare that they actually know and apologize for for making a mistake on something like this and, and probably doing the wrong thing. So the one thing that I struggled with in the presentation, this was a New York Times article that you had sent me. And so it, they had called or they talked about how companies are targeting employees for inflammatory statements. Um, and then they raised the notion of calling for a ceasefire as being inflammatory. And so, you know, the president of France has called for a ceasefire. Right? This is a very this is a mainstream view. And so I just didn't like the way that it was presented in this particular article. And so, you know, I, I, again, we don't know exactly the things that <laughs> I haven't gone through the posts that, they, that this woman had. Um, and I've said very consistently that people should be accountable for the things that they post, especially if they are hateful. Um, but it's frustrating, I think, that, you know, being targeted for expressing something that the majority of the world wants and is in favor of. And so that was that was a thing that I was a little bit um, confused by. Sure. Thanks, Rob. Um, Aparna, did you want to add anything? Any any thoughts on your end? Yeah. You know, so as somebody who spent a, a pretty big chunk of her childhood in the Middle East, I feel like I'm extra sensitive to Muslim folks, to women who wear a hijab. And like that kind of discrimination hits me really hard. I'm also, you know, noticing with a lot of my own clients right now that women who wear a hijab to work have stopped wearing it. And I've heard this a lot from my friends since October 7th that like they don't they they're actually really worried. And it's reminding them of what things were like after 9-11, right, that so many of us like really tried to hide our race, our ethnicity, like our like, you know, ethnic clothing and I don't think that this is an error on the part of Lululemon. Like, how are you going to crop somebody who's wearing a hijab? You know, like, this is a real, like, this is an intentional move. And I, they're doing something that they think is going to protect their brand, mm -hmm. right? That's what they're doing. They're doing something that they think is going to protect their brand. But what they've done instead is show a lot of black and brown people that this is not a brand that's actually willing to take a stance for, forget like diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Like for humanity, like you're a brand that's built its um, reputation, your image, your cap, like brand capital on women's empowerment. Yeah, thank you for that. What I'll also just add is when we make decisions like this, that's what I'm always curious about is like, at some point between the photo shoot and the release of the ad, there was decisions that were made that either we're going to crop this person out for whatever reason, because in the, in this article, the New York Times article, it said that they received incorrect information that Amina did not want to be included in the photos due to safety reasons. She shared with New York Times that that was never expressed to Lululemon. And so... What I find, I'm just always so curious because that's where the um, that's where bias creeps in, right? Is like in those moments of decision making where you decide whoever is in the room, 
that you're going to either crop or remove or intentionally or unintentionally do something that is going to have some sort of impact to either the person, people, community and, and, and customers. And so that's where I'm just curious, like what was actually said behind doors? We'll never know. Um, again, Lululemon apologized. They again, they said they received the incorrect information. Uh, but, you know, I'm kind of with you, Aparna, in the sense that, like, that you got to take a stance in, uh, for our brands and, and for those marketing um, when you're when you are hoping to use a diverse group of people in your campaigns. What are some of the impacts if you decide to cut them um, cut or them or cut them out <laughs> or um, not use them? So it's performative to me. All right, Aparna and Rob, thanks for that. Um, let's take a quick break here. We'll be right back with more DEI news and views. Woo, I like that rhyme. News and views with Aparna Ray. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance Plus, save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. We have Aparna Ray with us today. And so I'm going to jump into this news story. I'm going to read you a little bit from this article in the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to try to edit it because it's a little, little rough sometimes. A supervisor in San Francisco invited employees to a strip club. A supervisor in Denver had sex with his employee, told other employees about it, and pressed her to drink whiskey during work. And senior bank examiners texted female employees photos of their genitals. Uh, that is the lead in the Wall Street Journal article this past week, featuring tales of a toxic workplace culture at the FDIC. The agency has suffered from low retention. <laughs> Shocking. Former employers say leadership enabled and failed to punish this bad behavior. Parna, it's 2023. What are you thinking? What about FDIC? Any thoughts on mm. some of the behavior that mm. has taken place there? Yeah, I, I mean... I don't know. It's 2023 and, uh, you know, men are just trying to take us back to the 50s constantly. And so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, what was the point of, like, knitting the pussy hats and having a Me Too movement when this is happening? And I think that when I read stories like this, what I find myself wondering is this is what's come out. Mm. Right. What's happening that we're not even going to hear about for 10 more years, right? Like what's happening right now that we're not going to hear about for 10 more years. The other thing that it makes me, you know, think about and wonder, and I, I guess more so in the last couple of months is we have, we actually in writing have laws on the books for this kind of behavior mm -hmm. to not stand. 
any number of EEOC laws that should prohibit this, but there is absolutely no compliance. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no compliance. And there's no compliance at a regulatory organization that's in charge of compliance. And so the second thing that it makes me think of is, oh, if you're not following, first of all, like basic good manners, period, basic good manners, right? You're not following them at work. Um, You're not complying with the law. What else are you not complying with as financial regulators, bank regulators? Yeah. I'll just add, Rob, if you don't mind, there's so much happening at this agency. Like, it's so disturbing. Um, So just to like tack on to what you said, apparently, like a lack of role modeling, a lack of accountability, lack of like holding people accountable, lack of following through with any sort of policy or procedure, just like an absolute, you know, gross um, lack of care. But there's lots of happy hours. There's a there's a drinking culture that's really interesting. I think the article, Rob, uh, they subtitled it like the Wild <laughs> Wild West. Um, so you know, it it just it appears it's still full of like this male toxic masculinity, a culture of misogyny, um, a culture of harassment, all presented in, in like a a gray Macy's suit. You know, like it's gross. So do better. I do. Um, before I toss it back to you, Rob, I am curious, like we can talk through we can we can we can make we, we can observe some of these things that are coming out. But if I were speaking to leaders at the FDAC or, you know, DE&I folks or the HR head, I'd tell them to really start at the leadership level of mm. outlining expect, expectations of behaviors and then holding them accountable. Um, and that really, that really truly means like holding them accountable, like really giving coaching or performance, managing them out, like, cause it's unacceptable, but, uh, or if it's just dead on sexual harassment, like firing them. So it's, um, just, it's just really interesting that like, we're willing to have a whole article be written up about this. And this is a government branch and nothing is happening or changing. So it's just, it's really sad. Well, I think that, so I agree with all of that. And I think that there's other things happening, right? It's like th- this is part of them being called in front of Congress and oversight to, to like, to go through some of the things that have come out. Right. And so I think that, you know, I, I agree with everything. I looked at it also. There's a, there's a job design component. And then there's also this, this legacy of workplace culture and how hard it is to change. Right. And so if you think about this job for many years, right. So I don't know if you know this role, right? Like these folks are on the road a lot, a bank's failing, they come in, they're in the vault, like counting money. They, they stay there, you know, they, they're, they're on the road all, all the time. And so for a long time, the only people that could do this job or could or would do this job were men, right? So like going back to 40s, 50s and 60s and things like that. So, so you can imagine what the culture was like then. And, you know, what you're seeing is a residual impact of that lack of diversity in those roles for a really long time, right? So if you get, if you have a team of six people and they're all men, greater chance of bad behavior, right? You get a team of six people and it's you know four women and two men, better chance of better behavior. If the boss is a woman, you have a better chance of better behavior 
in that. I mean, that's basically so, saying that all men have bad behavior then. Like, no, I don't, no, I don't that, buy that. I'm saying right? that there's like, a non-zero chance. Yeah. The less you get, I'm saying the more diversity, the less there is a chance that, that there's an opportunity for some, for, for worse behavior and something like this. And especially if there's like, they have 11% of the, of their workforce of the bank examiner workforce was women. Right. And so think about it, like that legacy of that culture from like fifties and sixties is, is still with them. And you can't change the culture unless you're going to change the people that are leading that organization. Right. You can't, unless you have better diversity within that. So that is just a think that you can't, for these folks on the road as much as you used to. And then you also need to be, have greater diversity. You know, engineering is a pretty male dominated field. And if you put six engineers together who've been working long days, I don't think that like you get guys going to strip clubs and sending photos of genitalia. So I, I, I do, I also think that there is, a, there is a kind of person that, that finds success in industries like finance specifically that just is not the best of humanity. You know, I don't actually think it's necessarily only about the fact that, you know, put a bunch of men together and like, of course, they're going to look at, you know, some lewd content um, for the lack of a better word, right? I, I also think it is the personality of the industry because mm, for sure. the other thing that's still happening is traders doing lines of coke um okay. still right like it's not a thing that, that we see in movies it's a thing that's happening in real life they're going out they're drinking with clients every night and you know and so yeah i mean i live in redmond i see gobs of men that look tired and maybe they haven't showered in four days <laughs> but like they're eating ice cream they're at the hot pot they've gone to the arcade not the strip club yeah all right aparna you're on next for your news story okay so the second story that i brought today is it's less so a news story actually i think mm. that it's like a low-key academic piece from a doctoral student researcher in experimental psychology at McGill University, a premier education institution in Canada for, you know, any American listeners that, that may not know that. And, and the author, Jeffrey Toe, has, I think in some like really easy to understand ways, broken down why unconscious bias and implicit bias trainings don't work and like really clear ways helping us understand, you know, what the negative consequences are. And I want to read like a couple of sentences from his article where he says, you know, he sort of breaks down the difference between unconscious bias and implicit bias, which already are two different things that are often conflated. And he's asking himself, you know, like, why are organizations choosing this route to solve what is a gnarly problem? And he says while trainings at best can help raise awareness of inequality, they should not take precedence over more meaningful courses of action, such as policy changes that are more time intensive and costly, but provide lasting changes. If organizations want to affect meaningful societal changes on discrimination, they should shift our focus away from implicit biases and towards changing systems that perpetuate 
biased behavior. And then he, you know, he talks about the harm of a training-based approach actually being that they take accountability and responsibility away from the people that are more most likely to be perpetuating harm and giving them kind of like a free pass. Mm-hmm. So um, there's lots of really great academic insights in this article, um, but I'm going to toss it over to you all to hear from from you about what resonates. I think I think the three of us can absolutely agree that you can't send someone to the island of training and then expect them to come back overnight where behaviors and mindsets are shifted. And I will credit that saying to my friend and colleague, Amanda Carroll. She has said that for the last 20 years. And I think it holds true, right? Like real transformational change only occurs when practice is involved. And especially when you're, you know, my background is adult learning. So like when when you consider simulation-based learning, experiential learning, those are so key and critical to how our brains work as adults. Otherwise, any sort of other training is really meaningless. It's performative. It's a, to me, it's a waste of resources um, and money. So, uh, and time, not only the person, the learner, but also the facilitator, because it's like, what are we doing here? Um, so I think structural cleanup is really required because uh, before we offer trainings, I think we need to like understand what the mechanisms are that we're holding people accountable, how feedback is given, how feedback is received, how we're asking for feedback, how we're kind of, are we fostering an environment where folks are able to seek to understand, ask questions with humility, inquire in general? Because I think oftentimes there's cultures that are built where um, the systems don't allow for people to ask questions to create like a continuous improvement mindset. So I think like before we start throwing training at people thinking that's going to like solve some sort of problem, some sort of bias awareness building problem. I think there's other things that we need to start also focusing on um, and fix structurally. Yeah, this is uh, this, this sits home for me. I used to give a lot of uh, trainings uh, on on bias at the FDIC and uh, I don't think that (laughs) now just kidding. It it didn't seem like it didn't take, but so, so let me say something that's not pile on implicit bias for training. Let me say something nice about it, right? So like, so I want leaders when I'm starting to work with them to know that bias exists, right? And so the, the, the article you sent upon it was, was great. And it talks, it was very nuanced in some of these different concepts, right? There's still way too many leaders at companies. And you both know this, that, that you walk in and they have the assumption that everything happens in the world or in their company due to merit, right? And so the concept of bias is one way to start to knock down that myth of meritocracy in an organization for someone that's just completely unaware of uh, of, the, of that dynamic. So, you know, this is why, you know, obviously, and we work a lot on this, that the data-driven approach is so powerful. It leads you to process where the bias occurs, whether it's implicit or explicit, conscious or unconscious, and the data is completely indifferent there, right? And so from there, we focus on moving the numbers and removing the bias from those people processes. So I certainly prefer that. And if I do any kind of bias talk and anything that I do, it's about two to three minutes, but I just want to introduce the concept of bias to start to peck away at that myth of meritocracy that we still find in so many organizations. Okay. Well, I'm going to close out this, you know, section by kind of reading one last sentence from this article. And I, I think it really hits on 
the importance of integrity and ethics among the community of DEI practitioners, both in house, um, but also, I think, an ever growing pool of consultants, whether you're, you know, a DEI consultant at Corn Ferry or Deloitte or you're, you know, independent, um, mm. the need to be grounded in research extends, I think, just beyond best practice to like it's a harm reduction strategy. And so this is what Jeffrey says. He says, if diversity practitioners perpetuate this notion that unconscious bias underlies daily acts of discrimination, they could reduce accountability to words, perpetrators, and prevent behavior change. Um, and be it's because we generally pardon wrongdoers if, you know, their whoopsies was accidental, right? As opposed to an intentional, intentional or well thought through act of discrimination. So um, do the right thing, folks. Um, and with that, I'm going to pass it back to you, Nadia. Thanks. Um, and that's it. I'm going to sit on that and come back on that um, in the next episode because I want to reflect on do the right thing, folks. But some folks may not know what that is. And that's where I think I need to like reflect on what that what that means for me. Um, so thank you for for sharing that. All right, Dove, the health and beauty brand. Who uses Dove products here? Right over Anyone? here. Oh yeah. <laughs> I know. All right. Some of us do. Some Staple. of us don't. But I, this is more of a um, a rave than a deep. But I think it's worthy to share as a news um, story because I love it. So Dove is introducing Code My Crown, a two hundred and twenty six page guide to coding natural hairstyles for the world and gaming. Yahoo News reported that Dove's research shows that 85% of black gamers believe video games poorly represent natural hair and isn't always um, a positive display. So Dove partnered with the open source Afro Hair Library and a team of black 3D artists and animators to develop 15 hair sculpts, um, including um, hairstyles like twists, braids, afro with a fade cornrows and more um rob any reactions yeah i mean i i want to serve this back up to the two of you i you know obviously i read this and i was like cool <laughs> i yeah it sounds great you know really great uh work there um and then i, I kind of was diving in i was thinking about it in the context of the article we just went through and i was thinking well you know like depending on how much they spent is this border on it, where would I rather they spent their money as an organization? So like, it, it, you know, um, I looked at Dub leadership. I looked at you know, the, the, their, you know, some of the DEI reports that they have. They're at Unilever. That's the parent company of, of Dub. And you can see that, you know, representational parity in their executive team, not great. Their board, mostly white. And, and obviously it seems like a legacy um, as well. So, you know, I, I just I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, if you're if you're spending money, if you're allocating resources, would you rather that they dig in and and, and really go after some of the things that, that create the the leadership structure that you see? You know, if they wanted to make black beauty more accessible, could they lower the price of their products targeted toward black women? Mm -hmm. And so, let me just as a as a white man who I guess my my hairstyle is represented pretty well in, in video games, then you know, tell me what what are your thoughts, Aparna? 
Yeah, certainly as a curly haired girl, I mean, that's not that's not my do today specifically. Um, a lot of it resonates. And I think that Dove over the years has gotten a lot of criticism for being part of a parent company that is not diverse, that mm-hmm. is, you know, doesn't have an entirely clean supply chain. So I think there are a whole host of issues. And I can still remember that one Dove ad where there are women of different shapes and sizes in the white undies, right? Like the white bralette and the white underwear and uh, like fat women and skinny women and like moms with stretch marks on their bellies, right? And Mm -hmm. I I still remember that. And just kind of like breathing a sigh of relief. I was like, oh, okay, good, right? Like- Being larger bodied isn't, being, being, having dark skin isn't wrong or problematic. And Doug, for a very long time, has been behind trying to pass the Crown Act at the federal level. They've been funding organizations at the state level that have been trying to pass the Crown Act, which if folks listening don't know what that is, it is a it is legislation to ban discrimination on the basis of hair and specifically the hairstyles that black and brown folks have, which in most states, companies and schools can discriminate against people on the basis of their hair, right? right. Kind of ridiculous. And it's, it, I don't know if it's as or more ridiculous than the FDIC story. You know, you're like, it's 2023. Come on. Right. Like when white ladies had horrible perms, you weren't firing them for their god awful hairstyle. Stop getting after people with naturally curly hair. So I think I mean, I think this is a good move. And by the way, like gamers aren't just scrawny white guys living in their mom's basement. There are a lot of women and people of color that are gamers. Right. Like AOC is a gamer. Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. So, yeah, if I was a gamer, I'd want to at least have the option to pick a character that looks like me or feels like me. Both really great points. Um, I will just add to to, to wrap this up. Um, a few weeks ago, um, some of our listeners may recall, we spoke about an article on Dr. Kashona Gray's research on inclusive game design, where she highlights the racism in gaming, particularly with like redlining and kind of spaces so in general, I, I'm not a gamer, but I know several people that are gamers. It, it's a huge industry, not just with like youth, but also with adults, like you had mentioned AOC. So I think it is cool that Dev is partnering with Open Source Afro Hair Library to rethink their relationship to black and, and brownness. So um, especially in the tech and gaming space, knowing that it is a very, you know, influential industry right now. So, um, yeah, really cool. Really good stuff happening. And do better, Dove. Our Unilover. <laughs> All right, folks. Um, so that's it for the deets. We'll be right back with our final article from an amazing writer. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. We're here with Parna Ray. And our final article that we wanted to discuss is from Forbes. It is the essential role of white people in champion diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace by Aparna Ray. 
And so in it, Aparna, you say that as history shows, uh, it is an unfair and unrealistic expectation for marginalized groups to navigate their way out of systemic oppression alone, uh, and that to redress historic imbalances, it becomes crucial for white people to be proactive in paying forward their gains by championing, championing DEI initiatives, uh, and you call on white leaders to be bold in their efforts. So let's let's start there. What what Nadia? What resonated with you from this article? Um, so many things, and then I actually I'll I'll state them, and then I'd love to ask or pose a question to Aparna as the writer. But so first, the, if folks haven't read it, please we'll read it. We'll make sure we post it. Um, the article really provides like tactical steps that anyone, particularly a, a white person in and out of the DEI space, should take to continue their learning journey. And so, I, I guess I'll just say this kind of blatantly is that. Rob, like when you and I were talking about starting even this podcast, I think of I think of who I can influence and who you can influence. And it was a very intentional, you know, decision to really do this with you, knowing that you are in this space. Uh, You do think thoughtfully through much of your DEI journey has been really intentional. And when I think of behavioral and mindset shifts of folks that I can influence, versus who you can influence because of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think what I've observed in our in our practice is that you do have more of an influence with a certain kind of audience, meaning white males. And so for me, um, through my, you know, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm as charming as I can be. I'm as, I absolutely, you know, feel like I have knowledge and some sort of expertise in certain subjects. But in terms of social identity sh- shifts, I think that plays a major role in mindset change. And that most likely can come from you when we're talking about a dominant group of people that are in leadership. Mm. So, you know, I've said this to a number of times. I've said it to some of my other colleagues. So I absolutely lo- I love this article because it touches upon that in in, in some shape or form. Um, but apart, I, what I wanted to ask you was like, and I know you're not, you're, you're co-hosting with us. You're not necessarily a, a guest, but what I, would love to just know from you, like, what inspired you to write this? Because were like, were you observing something in your own practice that's, that that was like, I need to shine light on this in particular? Yeah. So um, I think a couple of months ago, I wrote an article saying that was titled, you know, something like "White Women Won DEI," and looking at the data around how affirmative action has you know overwhelmingly gone to support white women's advancement and they have the majority of you know the roles in DEI as well the majority of DEI practitioners are actually white women and they're also the most like lucrative and um right like they're not hustling for $3000 contracts and the backlash was i mean it like it was a kick in the pants swift and hard and there was a world of white women that came at me and they were like well i am on the side of the equity and i sit on an erg and blah 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 and and then there was a contingent a white folks that were like, and you make more money than me. And I, here I am championing DEI, but I'm not benefiting from it financially. 
And so a fellow, you know, leader, uh, Raven Solomon, saw some of the discourse happen because some of it happened very publicly. And she invited me to her, you know, I think monthly LinkedIn Live about what really is the role of the white folks in championing, advancing, et cetera. And that, so those series of events were the catalyst for writing this article. And, and I would say, you know, like, I think I wrote it maybe almost two months ago. And if I were writing it again, I would actually start with saying that people in positions of power never feel the responsibility to correct inequity. Mm. They are fighting tooth and nail to preserve their privilege. And this is no difference. And mm -hmm. if we're ever going to make movement, right, if we're ever going to make actual real substantive movement, it's going to have to come from good white folks like Rob saying, you know what, I want to do better. I am going to do better. And here's how. Let me show you how I'm doing better. What about the folks at FDIC? No, just kidding. <laughs> It's going to start with the leaders at FDIC. Uh, but, you know, so I wanted to share one thing with, I don't know if I've shared this with you. And so one of the things that stuck out, so again, I, I highlighted the, the, the thoughts around being bold. And I don't know if I've shared this story, but I, so I was, you know, I'm obviously very proud of the work that I've done uh, in organizations on behalf of equity. And oftentimes, um, you know, it created very tangible impact for non-dominant groups, right? But but the one thing that sticks with me is there was an episode many years ago where uh, my team and I had done some data analysis. We came up with some really great insights about differences in equity within an organization. And I handed this analysis to a DEI leader and a lawyer, both of which were black, and they presented these findings to the executives in a way that I thought was very deferential. And I was pissed, right? Like I was, I was, I was super pissed. I thought they could have been much more forceful. They could, uh, on the behalf of what I consider their constituents, at the time, and I thought they should have been angrier. And so many later, I, I realized that as black professionals in that position, they can't present things a certain way, right? They can't always be worked up and be de demonstrative in that setting, in that context. And so, so what I took from that was it was my role to be bold and to be loud and show anger at certain points strategically, right? And so you know, and I realized that I was leaving it up to them, right? And so that I didn't see everyone as my as my stakeholders, my constituents, right? And so that was really the start of my journey, right? So that's why I've always tried to be very conscious of when a person of color is holding back something to help them out, to push and be a little bit more provocative uh, in those situations. So that was the that was why I thought it was a really spot on uh, representation of one of the things that I think is very important that white people can do in this in this space. That's great, folks. Um, that wraps up the deets for this week. Aparna, we are so like fortunate and honored to have you come back in, in a different capacity. And we hope that you come back again soon. 2024 has your name on it. So um, thank you again for, for joining us. And folks, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for Inclusive Collective. Just a reminder that if you're looking for DEI and workplace culture strategy consulting, problem solving, or training, you can reach Nadia at Nadia at NazConsultants.com and me, Rob, at Rob at Consulting.com. 
This Collective is a production of Refilion Media and is edited by RMFA. We'd love to hear from you. So send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refilion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Be sure to follow up on LinkedIn so you can subscribe to the IC Monthly Newsletter if you like what you heard. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcast. Thanks again for joining us upon Array. Thank you, Nadia. We'll be back next week. Be well.